Colby, if you are half the soldier that you are a young man, you're going to be fine. And uh, I can tell you're going to make a good Marine because even when he's happy, he looks like he wants to kill you. <laughs> Did you notice that? Pastor Gary is saying all these glowing things, and he's like, that's right, you better believe that. One of my favorite memories of Colby and Cameron kind of growing up in the church and having mom that works in the office and they were kind of in and out from time to time, not very often, but from time to time. And they were kind of arguing with each other as little boys will do, you know, they were pretty little at the time. And I remember Cameron coming in and just complaining to his mom, mom, I wanted dominion over air and water and Colby keeps water. He won't let me have dominion over that too. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but that sounds exactly like what boys would fight over. Who gets sci-fi dominion over the elements of the world or something? Anyway, we're all still little boys at heart. All right, so uh, we are going to get into John chapter 3. Again, we left John chapter 3 two weeks ago. We had Sam Huggard from uh, the Free Church, the New England District, come and, uh, and speak to us last week. And so we took a break. We kind of interrupted the Nicodemus story partway through. And um, where we left it off, I, I think, needed to break there so that we could get into the thrust of what Jesus wanted to communicate to this man who came to see Jesus at night. And you remember we said that, um, you know, he, he could have had several reasons for that. Text doesn't really tell us. It could have been cowardly on his part. Like, I don't want my buddies and other religious leaders to see that I'm talking to, to Jesus. They're not on board with him. I don't really think that's the case. It could have been um, a professional courtesy. He's really busy. I'm really busy. We got a lot of things going on in the day. I want to um, approach him when his work day is done. That's possible, I guess. But I think there's some sincerity in Nicodemus's approach to Jesus at night. I, I have a longing in my heart. You see from the language he shares with Jesus, he has some things he's got to sort out and he wants Jesus undivided attention. So getting him at night is a more opportune time to soak up this time and to really get to the bottom of the issues that he's carrying around in his soul. And, and that has led us to this next section of text, which is containing the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John three sixteen. And uh, you know, you're familiar with it, most of you. You've heard it. If you can't quote it verbatim, you've heard other people quote it verbatim. If you've watched any football over, over time, you've seen it you know, on signs. You've seen it uh, sometimes on players' um, uh, eye stuff, the glare makeup stuff that they wear as, as football players. Uh, if you shop at Forever 21, which I don't because 21 was like forever ago for me. But if it's stamped on the bottom of the shopping bags and all this kind of stuff, John 3.16 is the most concise and helpful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that God sent his son born of a virgin to live a sinless life for us, to die for those sins so that all who believe in him would have everlasting life. That's, that's the, the gospel in a nutshell. And so when you come to the most famous text in all of scripture, I admit to you that I felt a little bit of pressure walking into this week going, how do you put a new spin on that? I mean, Billy Graham has like knocked this one out of the park over decades, right? The master at saying the, the repeated stuff in a new and fresh way and explaining the love of God to all who needed to hear it and things. So I could just play you one of his messages and we'd be good to go. 
So coming into this, I confess to you that I wanted to complicate this process a little bit. I wanted to get a little tricky with the text. I wanted to explain John 3.16 in a way that you've never heard. It, it comes from a good place. I want to teach you well. I, I want you to feel like you are fed and that you have all those. It comes from a good place, but my good desire forces me to complicate the things in my life that should be simplified. I wonder if you can relate how you approach your work from time to time, right? If we are supposed to show up and do our job well, if we lead people, we lead people well. If we do uh, work just with our hands and we can do it in isolation, do we do that well enough that our performance speaks for itself and people think highly of us because we're hard workers, we're faithful, we're committed? It really is about that basic a lot of times. And don't we complicate it? We have agendas, we have concerns, we have fears, we have goals, all those kinds of things. And so we make our existence harder, even with good intentions. Perhaps in our family dynamics, if you have parents or you have children or you have, I guess we all have parents, right? I'll I'll figure it out pretty soon. Um, You know, whether you've got those kind of family dynamics or in your husband and wife relationship, or in your friendships and those kinds of things, it it should be simple. That should be our safe place, right? Life is complicated out here, but at least I have the simplicity of love and affection and giving and sacrifice at home, right? But are our family existences really ever that simple? For months, we've been talking as faithers at this church about the spiritual disciplines. Those are the things that, that we want to engage in and, and work a little bit harder for or have a little bit more direction in and stuff about the things that grow us closer to Jesus Christ, help us to understand his word. And sometimes we take on endeavors like I'm going to read three or four chapters a day in the Bible. We get a plan and we do that kind of thing intending to, with good intentions, to get through this entire monstrosity called the Bible so that we can understand it, so we can understand the Lord better, so that we can see Jesus on every page of the text and all these kinds of things. Our good intentions turn into complications when we get a few days behind or a month behind. And then we're like, okay, if I up this to eight chapters or if I skip, man, that's all the begats and everything. I can get past that and everything. And we start to formulate this plan because what was supposed to be simple If you think of the psalmist as he's meditating on the word of God and delighting in the word of God, does that sound like complication? I share my temptation to complicate this simple verse to illustrate the point that this is what we all struggle with. I want you to hear this, and I'm going to be a little bit of a broken record on this for our time together, is that our temptation to complicate our life stems from our desire to control it. You see, subtly what's underneath me wanting to complicate this text is that so you walk away going, that guy really dug in. That was so helpful. That was, I anticipate your reaction and I want to manage it. So I complicate things. If I relinquish that control to the only one who truly has it, which is the Lord, then that's between him and you what he does with my preparation and my investment. And then all of a sudden, I've not complicated a passage that I think was intended to be very, very simple. And this is how it works for us. And I think that that we have to see John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not have should not perish but have everlasting life if we don't see it in the context of the message to nicodemus we're going to miss the simplicity of this Nicodemus showed us in the first section of chapter three that that we have a tendency or not just a tendency, but that we all the time undervalue the worth of Jesus. If we approach Jesus, if we search him in sincerity, we never walk away going, I don't see what the fuss was all about. He wasn't that great. If we approach him sincerely, he always blows our doors off. Even even when we are committed to him and we love him and we read all about him, we study him, we fellowship in him, all of those things, he's always more than what we ever estimate. And that's going to be our problem until we meet him face to face. We don't have the capacity to truly express the worth of Jesus Christ, even in our worship. So we undervalue Jesus' worth. We ignore or we miss our core problem. Jesus says to Nicodemus when he comes to him, and he's basically confessing, I mean, I've done everything. I do everything to the, to the nth degree so that they've promoted me, they've elevated me, and I still have this hole in my heart. There's this, still this longing. It's not checking off all the boxes. So Jesus says that's because you were born in a physical kingdom, but you weren't born in a spiritual one. You are dead spiritually and we miss that we think that we can pile more activity on i can give more to the church i can show up more i will go and volunteer for kids ministries because i want god to be happy with me we pile on to fill and to perform duty so that we think that we can burst out of this kind of atmospheric bubble of our physical existence to get into the spiritual and jesus is telling nicodemus it ain't possible You were born in one realm, and until you're born in the other one, you don't get in. So like Nicodemus, we then overthink or we complicate the solution to our problem. Jesus says simply, you need to be born again. Jesus was on mission in his conversation with Nicodemus in 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 the evening hours to introduce a spiritual kingdom to him and anybody else that is stuck in this failed physical kingdom. We were born in perfection in the moment Adam and Eve said, that's eh, not good enough, let's go do it our own way. And the whole thing fell. Now that we're born in that kingdom, we are born in the, under the effects of that fall. We're all tainted with that same sin that entered the garden. I like to say it this way, if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been you and me. We would have done the same. John 3, let's pick up our story here beginning in verse 9. Nicodemus responds to all of these things. Jesus has talked to him about, you know, you're looking for things that you can't see. The wind is coming from a direction you can't tell. All you see is leaves rustling, that sort of stuff. He's talking to him about the image of new birth being born physically. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Remember we said I like Nicodemus's question because a why question shows I'm not convinced this is for me. Why, why are you asking me this? You have seen my resume, right? You do know that I know all the laws of God and then some, some of the laws that we've created and invented too. I know them all verbatim. I know all the Old Testament stories, what we would call the Bible, all this kind of stuff. If he had said, why? Why are you telling me this? It would have proven that Nicodemus wasn't ready to go another step forward. But he says, how? I'm intrigued, but I don't know how we're getting there. So in verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the Billy Graham of Judaism? Are you the man that everyone looks to, to know and explain these things he's saying? And yet you don't understand these things. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Let me just quickly say that I believe the we in this is God speaking, uh, Jesus speaking of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His disciples are too green. They're not even figuring out what's going on yet. They just think, hey, we're maybe we're on to something good. Jesus seems to know what he's talking about. So Jesus isn't going to say we, all we robed ones, we speak of these things. I think he's saying we, from a Trinity standpoint, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you, not just Nicodemus, but plural, y'all, all of you types, you and your religion and your Phariseeism and all those kinds of things, you all do not believe. How can you believe if I tell, I'm sorry, I jumped, a, I jumped a place. In verse 12, you don't receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, if I've told you about wind and, and birth and water and all these things, these earthly metaphors, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I can't even get into all the explanations of the spiritual things for you, Nicodemus, because you're still stuck in thinking and tripping up over earthly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus is saying, I am the only one that can talk to you about heavenly things because I'm the only one who's been there and come down to explain it. Everyone else that goes stays and they wouldn't come back if they, if they, even if they could. So I'm the one that can explain heavenly things. So Jesus continues to show Nicodemus that his salvation rests in a kingdom that Nicodemus' heart is having trouble seeing. I like the quote from Tenney where he says, revelation, not discovery, is the basis for faith. In other words, you and I can go on all of our pursuits for truth and the Lord uses that. He lets us go down a certain path. We start picking all these various philosophies or religions or, or practices or obsessions or hobbies and stuff like that. We set out to discover a lot of things. But until God reveals himself through his son to you, we are blind. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, the scripture says. Revelation, not discovery, is the basis for the faith that we have. Because God has revealed himself to us. So Nicodemus asks, how? How am I supposed to pull this off? How am I supposed to be born again? So this is where we get to the meat, if you will, of our text. A few simple, very simple instructions that I think Jesus is giving to Nicodemus. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus responds to the question of how by saying, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness... So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, because Jesus is a master of the scriptures, he is the word of God. He knows this stuff and he knows Nicodemus knows these stories. He takes him back to a story that we would locate in Numbers chapter 21. A story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, having been freed and rescued from uh, slavery in what's called the Exodus. And they're removed from all the oppression, the lack of freedom, the torture, if you will, the backbreaking work, the, the lack of resources and food and all those kinds of things, all the things that you would expect from uh, slavery. God says, okay, finally, I'm going to break his back, the Pharaoh's back, and you're good to go. So they start their journey in what's referred to as the wilderness because it takes them 40 years to get to the place that God promised because they keep doing things like we're going to see in Numbers chapter 21. We pick up in verse 4. It says, From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
And the people acted like people. You could probably put in parentheses. The people became impatient on the way. Thanks for the rescue, but the food is bland. We're sick of this already. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless. Oh, when we said there was no food, I meant we didn't. there's no food that we liked. It's kind of how that double thing is going on here. So we, we, we don't like what we've been given. We get these munchkins every single day. And everybody likes daily munchkins. I mean, that's pretty sweet until we don't like it anymore. And then we don't think that you're really providing for us. Because that's what God was doing. He was giving them daily bread, kind of raining out of the sky, if you will. And they got sick of it. And they said, "What did, did God just bring us out here just to kill us? As though God only had a plan to free them from Pharaoh. And then go, oh, that's right. I didn't think about how to sustain you. I didn't think about how to get you there. So what does the Lord do? The Lord says, okay, well, we'll give them more food and we'll make sure that they have things more to their liking. No. The Lord sent, according to verse 6, fiery serpents, venomous snakes among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we love munchkins. Have we told you that before? I love this stuff. I don't know what that guy's problem was. You know, the one that's laying over there dead. He was just a jerk. But we love me some munchkins. So keep them coming. We're good. They went to Moses and they, they said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. The request is remove the problem. We don't want to get bitten anymore. Pretty understandable request. That's you and me, right? So God answers the prayer as Moses prayed for the people. Verse eight says, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent or the image of a venomous snake and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, which means there'll still be snakes, guys, when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We see here that salvation for us is being related to a context that we can understand, that Nicodemus is seeing and hearing language. He's hearing language that is like setting his brain on fire from all that he's studied and all he's tried to live out. And Jesus is saying, just like Moses took an image of a serpent, he didn't go and impale one of the serpents and said, we're just going to hold this up. God said, take one like the serpents, an image of it, and then hold it up before him, before all the people. Just let's just think about this for a split second. Jesus is saying that if you if 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 the sacrifice that Jesus was going to be crucified and held up for all to see, if it was any one of you and I, we've we've got the venom in us. Us dying on behalf of anybody else doesn't do any good. It had to be one like them, but not with the same infection not with the same potential to kill or any of those sorts of things, that, that Jesus was fully man, but without sin. And when he died for us, he took all of our sins on him. He was elevated to a position high on a cross, clearly the symbol of our sacrifice. Instead of, it's clearly the symbol of our sin, I should say, instead of being guilty himself for having done the things that we've done. God says, I want you to, to find the image of a serpent and hold it up. 
And I think Nicodemus is starting to see here that salvation isn't as complicated as religious tradition and added rules and regulations have made it. Because God said, so Nicodemus says, oh, that's right. That was really easy, right? You get the snake bite. Even if you're two miles away, you're like, got to get to the pole. Got to look at that snake. Drag my gimpy leg. Why? Because I just have to see the snake. If, if I look through the clearing and the snake is way down there, as soon as I see it, I don't die from what just happened to me. Seems really stupid, doesn't it? Really simple. God, just not let the snakes bite us. We said we're sorry. You seem to have accepted our repentance. Why would you still let us get bitten by snakes? You and I have been infected with the venom of sin since day one. The kingdom that we were born in, this physical kingdom, has fallen. It has been permeated with this venom. And God didn't just, as soon as we said, I'm sorry, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? He didn't say, yep, now the problem's gone. You're never going to make another mistake. You're not going to be infected by the venom, any of those sorts of things. Instead, he allows us and uh, has us still live in this environment so it will cause us to look to only him as our rescue. Nicodemus' brain is starting to explode here. I've done so much. I still haven't been able to clear out this venom from my system. And like we said at the outset, our temptation to complicate our life stems from our desire to control it. Nicodemus would have been far more satisfied as a man to have found the golden nugget on his own, to have done just the right ritual. And Jesus would have said, you know what? You just nailed it. You're all set. You're good to go. How, how rewarding would that have been to Nicodemus? He would have gone and told his friends and his families, I found the secret ingredient. It seems really pathetic that we would have to just look at a snake. You think about what, just play the movie in your mind. Some people are getting bitten and, and, and some are like, hey, we were told to look. So we look because they have sort of like that childlike faith. God said, do it. So I'll do it. But then there's some others because I, I would encourage you not to underestimate the hardness of our human hearts. There'd be some others that would just feel the bite and be like, oh man, oh, it's starting to tingle. Hey, uh, you know, God said, look at the snake. I know, I know. Just let me just let the reality of this soak in. Let me think about this a little bit. I'm not sure if I want to look up. Dude, what's the problem? Just glance up. Just look at the snake. I know, but has anybody formed a committee? Can we get rid of this? Can we do an anti-venom or something like that? Who's going to build the fences, keep these snakes around? Stop overthinking it. Look at the snake. And it might seem like a really silly illustration to, to break it down to these ridiculous terms, but that's what lives within us. God says, look, and we're like, yeah, I'm just not sure yet. Because if I look there and it works, it means you're real and you know what's better for me. And it would be really, really silly of me to start living life on my own terms and in my own way. If you're the venom healer, why would I deny and doubt anything else that you've said? All of that surrender comes to the front of our mind when we, we are challenged to just do the simple thing that God is calling us to do. Just look to Jesus. Secondly, as we move on, I think Jesus is giving him the simple instruction to just believe in his name. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
There's so much we can say about this passage. There's so many different angles that people far more brilliant than I can take with this. But I think it's pretty clear and right on the nose that God is saying, I initiated love for you. That that's the message. And I think that's why it resonates so much with a greater population is because we need to hear that message that God loved us enough that he put a plan into action. He initiated it. The core of our salvation is that true life had to come to us. We couldn't reach it on our own. Every time somebody says, I think there's a way to rescue myself. Every, I think there's a way for me to find God. As soon as we say that, in comes this new religion or new system or new cult or new practice or something like that. Because we can figure it out. Like Nicodemus, we were born in this kind of atmospheric bubble called, called uh, the physical kingdom. And we keep bumping up on the roof of it with all of our activity, all of our desire, all of our attempts to reach God. But you can't transcend the finite. God had to enter into time and space to save us. Love took the first step. Imagine what your home lives would be like. Imagine what your, your community life would be like, what your work life would be like. If you resisted that all too human urge when you wake up in the morning to think, how can people love me today? If you started off by saying, how am I supposed to initiate love to all those I encounter just like God did for me? I, I was completely pathetic. I was completely unable to save myself. So he came to me. You're going to run into those people that you think are pathetic or incapable of making you happy and all that sort of stuff. The message of John 3.16 should infuse your mind, to infuse your heart to be able to say, I'm going to show them the same love that was shown to me. This is why I think Nicodemus is the perfect example of the familiar uh, verse from Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If Nicodemus can't bust out of that bubble with all of his do-gooding and sincerity, what chance do we have? I think this passage also tells us that love had to be demonstrated. God didn't just send it in a a letter in a bottle and say, I hope you believe that. He said, I'm going to show you that I'm serious. And Jesus says that in this demonstration of God giving his son, which we'll talk about a lot in the coming months, especially as we go into Good Friday and Easter, talk about what it meant for God to give his one and only his unique son that Nicodemus couldn't comprehend yet. But he played a role in that whole process later to come. Spoiler alert. That love was being demonstrated in a tangible way for us to experience and to see. And I picture that there's a series of ups and downs in this conversation as Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, I've come to save Israel. He's like, yes, but I've also come to save all those outsiders that we call the Gentiles too. Oh, why them? We're the pure ones. We're the ones who are dedicated and all these kinds of things. So there's like this, yes, he's coming to save Israel. And, eh, but why them? Where Jesus says, I've come not to condemn the world. Yes, he's not going to say anything about all of our wrongdoing and our sin. Because you're already cooking in your own stew. Oh, man. He says, if you don't believe in the name of the Son of God, you're condemned already. I don't have to come and pile on. I've come to lay my life down to give you the alternative, to give you the rescue and the salvation out of it. And Jesus says, this will be the result to step out into the light. Let's finish our text. 
back in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. John's already introduced us to Jesus as the light of the world in the beginning of the letter. And people loved. Let's just stop there for a second. Sorry for the cue people that are putting the text up and everything for me. People loved. It is, it is possible and it is all too pervasive for people who hate God to still love. Let's not think that people can't love. We have the capacity. We all love in buckets. We love a lot. Jesus says the problem is your capacity to love. It's the object of that which you love. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's a desire to stay in the shadow. I don't want you to see what I'm up to. I don't want you to see the motives of my heart. Even Nicodemus would have to confess this. It's interesting, isn't it, that he came at night to see Jesus? He came in darkness, probably not even recognizing sort of the metaphoric spiritual darkness that he was really walking in. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It's invasive. It's uncomfortable. It's tough to deal with and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Augustine said, we are what we love. The act of love isn't on trial. It's the object of our affection that is. But Jesus said that truth would be vindicated, that sincerity and that humility that would lay itself, that would lay down its own rights and its own ambitions to receive the light of Jesus Christ coming in. In verse 21, he says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, let's finish it up. You ready? Key statement. This is what we've been talking about over and over and over again. Our temptation to complicate our life stems from our desire to control it. The fastest way back to the simplicity of what God would call you to believe, to to look on Jesus as the only rescue for the the venom that affects you, to actually step forward in belief, your, your straightest path to that is to say, what am I trying to control in my life that Jesus wants full reign of? And how do I let that go? It starts from a place of believing that we are sinners, recognizing that after the snake bite, we don't sit there and say, I think I'm fine as the leg starts doing this. No, I'm good. But recognizing that we have been infected with something that is going to kill us and that's sin. Not very popular, not very common in a day of self-positivity and psycho um, labels and all these kinds of things. And everyone's got an out, an excuse for their behaviors and all the things they do. You and I have been infected with a venom that shows up in our lives every single day. So will we look to Jesus in faith as he is lifted up in crucifixion before us, but also in glorification as the victorious son who conquered that cross and rose again, as we sang about earlier? Do you need to put your name in John 3.16? God so loved Brent. God so loved, fill in your name, that he gave Jesus for you. Will you embrace the simplicity of the offer? New birth by simply looking to Jesus as the only salvation for the venom of sin that courses through our bodies. Will you take this next step of belief and actually follow Jesus into the light? It's really simple. It's not easy, but it's really, really simple. And I think that we make things more complicated than God ever intended. 
The simplicity of the calling of Jesus Christ is our only salvation. I pray that you hear it today as it's being offered. Would you please stand and let's prepare our time to uh, prepare ourselves to close out in worship. Lord, thank you, God, for your words. And thank you, God, for the pervasiveness of John 3.16. Thank you that it's had an impact on the culture around us. Thank you that it has been so instrumental in bringing many, many thousands and millions to your cross. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to live by its simple design, that we would continue to obey its simple call in our lives. I pray for those who don't know you personally yet, Lord, who haven't looked to the cross to see how you've been lifted up on their behalf. I pray that they would look to you. I pray that they'd call in your name, ask for the forgiveness of the sin that, that, that infects them, and ask you, Lord, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, to believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. As we look to you and we behold you, Lord, be pleased with us in Jesus' name. Amen.